Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello! next to each other reunited on, on a road trip because Ed is driving Elmer and Louise oh I don't want you to drive off a cliff no perhaps not that wouldn't be a great ending long before December the 12th perhaps <laughs> even after then you even, trigger a by-election even after you wouldn't want to well, do that we don't know we yeah. don't know um, yes I've, I've come to visit you uh, yes. I was missing you you've come to observe basically I have yeah it's like you're the sort of David Attenborough of elections it is, it's sort of an anthropologist. Yeah, I mean, nobody can accuse you of having helped me in the campaign, that's definitely true. No, I mean, I don't think I actively hindered you. Not, but not I did, deliberately, no. I did, did try to stay impartial. You did, you, did, you definitely were impartial. Well, I was very impressed by your door-knocking technique. Oh, thank you very much. Thank People you. seem very pleased to see you when you knock on the door. Uh, well, I don't know, it's all various. No, no, they were not. People, <laughs> people were... People were uh, Nice. You got into a sort of intense discussion with one of my canvassers, who who um, who I, I really I'm always excited to see him because he plays in Magic, which is a Queen tribute band. And basically, he he didn't do any door knocking for about half an hour as you sort of wanged on to him about sort of Freddie Mercury and goodness knows what. I just wanted to know because he he plays the guitar in the band. Yeah. I wanted to know if he made his own guitar out of a fireplace which is what Brian May did I had to sort of tell you off basically didn't I I got told off a couple of times I I think I kept distracting your merry band of canvassers well it's like the point of canvassing is not to have a kind of chin wag about sort of Queen and their greatest hits and the way they make their guitars I mean it felt very much to me like a merry band of carol singers only without the carol singing yeah exactly and you didn't you didn't you didn't think the sort of meeting people was too sort of Scary biscuits. I thought everyone was lovely. Everyone was. But you, uh, you, you, you wouldn't have. Fan- I know you weren't able to do it yourself because you were there in a journalistic capacity or in a sort of observing capacity, rather. But you didn't. You didn't look at it and think, "Oh, I'd really like to be doing that." I, d- I did think maybe it was odd because because I'm sort of keeping my dis- distance. Yeah. I, was, I felt like I was lurking behind people's hedges, eavesdropping on conversations. Lurker. 
a lurker. Yeah, I was worried that somebody might ring Neighbourhood Watch on me. <laughs> well, I mean, look, you know, I mean, I have to say the way you were dressed, I'm really surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, you. I mean, it's sort of like, how can I go to Doncaster and look like a hoodlum who's, just, <laughs> who's kind of about to kind of, you know, break into somebody's house? Uh, I mean, you look like... You, you think the it, balaclava was a bad idea? Well, then? yeah, it was more like you looked like a sort of... I don't know. It's like, you know, it's an extra from the Italian job or something. <laughs> uh, um, but if that was the look you were going for, an extra from the Italian job, you did really yeah, well. That, that, I mean, that. you only needed a sort of large sack of extra hanging over. You're sort of saying swag, <laughs> swag on it. And it would have been sort of, you know, it would, you'd have kind of... Been just slightly complete, less conspicuous. You'd have completed yeah. the double bluff. Yeah. I was very excited to find out that Mexborough is in your yes. constituency, yes. birthplace of Brian Blessed. Yes, because I inter- I interviewed him recently, and he was a fascinating on her, her hometown glory. Yeah, he he, oh. t- he told me that he remembers being born. He was telling me right. about his father, That's who was extra- a miner, who he remembers being born. So he says, Ted, Hugh- would- Ted Hughes was also went to school in Mexborough. Oh, here's, here's one for you. Brian Blessed told me the that the founder of the Vegan Society. Listen to this. This, yeah. is, this is another Mexborough one. Brian Blessed told me that his dad taught Freddie Truman how to bowl. Wow, amazing! I thought you'd be more impressed with that in as a Mexborough. Yeah. Wow. He's, he's from there as well, isn't he? Interesting. Yeah. Um, I've been on Wikipedia. I've yeah. learned a few things. Yeah. Um, so, there we are. So what's your reason to be cheerful then? Oh, my reason to be cheerful is Sarah was on Live at the Apollo this week. Yes! Well, has it been on? Yeah, it was on... Um, uh, because I because obviously I, knew, I was in, in on the inside track, mm. knowing it was going to be recorded. Yeah. And uh, I just saw the band Bastille were tweeting about how good she was on it. Really? Yeah. Were they were they there as well? I think they saw it on the telly. Dan from Bastille. Yeah, I Bastille know Dan from Bastille. Really? A little bit, yeah. Well, but you know, you and I mean, my wife. When I say I know him, you know, it's sort of show business, more no. or less. Right. Yeah. Um, How about you? What's your your reason to be cheerful? My reason this week? to be cheerful is that you're here. Oh, stop it! No, it is. Would you like me to get out of the car now, though? You look like yeah, you need yeah, to be somewhere. Basically, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but it is really nice for you to come. Isn't I do appreciate you coming. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Right, let's get on with the episode. This week, we're talking about compulsory voting. As we've discussed on the podcast before, although turnout has increased in recent years, around a third of those registered still don't vote in British elections. And this means that governments can win with the support of less than a quarter of the electorate. And some groups, particularly young and poorer voters, are far less likely to vote, meaning that their interests are systematically underrepresented in politics. Now, some people argue that just as we have to pay taxes or do jury service, it's legitimate to make it compulsory to vote. In fact, in 2015, President Obama floated it as a solution to the problems of declining turnout and of underrepresentation of minorities in US politics. Australia has had compulsory voting since 1924. Turnout there is consistently above 90%, with around 5% of voters choosing to spoil the ballots rather than vote for any particular party. And to tell us about compulsory voting in Australia, we have Judith Brett, who's written a fantastic book. It's called From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. She is also Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Uh, Judith, thank you you so much for staying up on what I'm guessing is a balmy summer evening down under. Yeah, moderately balmy. 
it's better than we have in London at the moment. I wondered if you could start by telling me about how compulsory voting works in Australia, if you could just sort of explain the basics of it. Okay, well, before compulsory voting, we also have compulsory registration. That is, once you turn 18, or if you become you're a new immigrant and you become a citizen, it's compulsory for you to go on to the electoral roll. It's not, a, it's not voluntary. Once you're on the electoral roll, it's compulsory for you to vote. Uh, so if you don't vote, you get a letter um, asking you if you've got some really good reason for not voting and if you haven't, you get a very small fine. And, and is, is that small fine much of a deterrent? Is the reason that, that, that not that many people uh, sort of disobey the law, is it because the fine is a deterrent or is it because people are bought into the compulsory voting system? It's the latter. The fine's only uh, about $20, I think. I mean, if you, um, if you then object and say, I didn't vote, you know, because you have some conscientious reason or something, um, it can escalate. But most people um, vote. It's, it's become a sort of habit, really, I guess. it's um, People know they're expected to vote and they do. And, and the debate around compulsory voting in Australia, it's, it started back in the 1860s. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the history leading up to when it, when it was finally introduced in the 1920s. Okay, so the idea, you know, is raised from in the 1860s. It's raised, it's raised sort of periodically. Um, it initially it was raised by what we might see as conservatives of um, in the face of organised voting blocks. It said that you know it, it would make the sort of lazy, respectable citizens who were too busy going about their everyday lives uh, vote, and that would balance the violent partisans. When organised labour starts, you know, be- becomes more powerful in, Victor- in Australia, which it does earlier here than it does in, in the United Kingdom, it was seen as, a, as potentially counteracting the organisational power of the Labour Party by making the middle class vote. Um, but nobody ever really objected to it. People in Australia, when it ever came up, it was... Uh, the major argument that was generally put for it was that if we had compulsory voting, we would know that our governments were supported by the majority of electors. So it was a sort of majoritarian democratic argument that was put for it. Then the objections that were raised were generally practical ones. You know, how high should the fine be? Won't it be administratively difficult because too many people will not vote and then that'll be a big burden on the enforcement agencies. It, the thing that was striking to me when I looked at the debates was that there's never mounted a, a philosophically um, robust opposition to, to, to um, compulsory voting based on principles of liberty or freedom of conscience or that sort of thing. And so then it, it's raised periodically. It doesn't go anywhere. In 1911, the federal government introduces compulsory registration. It's a Labor government that does that. It doesn't introduce compulsory voting at that point because the Labor Party um, is very suspicious of postal voting and it can't really introduce compulsory voting if it doesn't introduce postal voting. It thinks that if they have postal voting, the secrecy of the ballot will be compromised. Uh, So that's a bit of a, a sort of a roadblock. 
But once that's out of the way, which happens by the end of the, of the First World War, there's really um, no obstacle. It's just a matter of it happening. And, you know, it wasn't high on the government's priorities after the war, but in 1924 a private member's bill was introduced and everybody voted for it. I mean, the, it went through both houses in a day. The um, I suppose there, there was a... Uh, another precipitating factor, which was that uh, turnouts seemed to be falling off. People felt that, you know, that citizens needed to be reminded of their duty to vote. Um, but it, it wasn't really very controversial. And, and did it have a big impact on the elections immediately after that? Yeah, well, it increased the turnout. I should say, actually, Queensland had introduced compulsory voting in 1915. We have a federal system, and so the, the states have their own electoral and franchise laws. Um, and so Queensland had introduced it and the turnout had immediately shot up. So everybody knew that it would have a big impact on the turnout, which it did. And so since then, turnouts at federal elections are, are regularly in the 90% range. Wow. And, and so typically how many people spoil their ballot paper? Surprisingly few. Right. Because that, that does raise an issue. It's actually compulsory to turn up and get your name crossed off the electoral roll. But what happens when you're inside the ballot box? You can put in a blank ballot sheet or you can bank ballot paper or you can swear or draw an obscene drawing or whatever. Um, but it's, it's not particularly large. Right. And just to take a little detour, you, you mentioned concerns around the secrecy of voting. I'm right in thinking that the, the secret ballot, the voting booths uh, that we all know and love, they were an Australian invention. Yes, that's right. The, um, when the secret ballot was introduced uh, in Australia, in, in, the, in the state of Victoria and South Australia in the 1850s, it came at around the same time as manhood suffrage so there was going to be a lot of people voting and it was going to be secret and so they had they were faced with this sort of practical problem how were they going to get them all through in the time um and somebody came up with the idea of the compartmentalized polling booths well thank you you're one of only 19 countries in the world with compulsory voting and i think only nine of those countries strictly enforce it what, what yeah. do you think is or was different about Australia that led to you adopting it when places such as the UK or the United States didn't? Well, look, I think in Australia, I think it's the commitment to majoritarian democracy um, was was very uh, strong here fairly early from the 1850s onwards and the fact that we get manhood suffrage pretty much by the 1860s. The other thing is the early development of the Labor Party here. And the third would be the fact that we have very early um, elections run by a centralised public service agency. So we, you know, we have an Australian Electoral Commission, but before that, like in 1902, there was an Australian Electoral Office and they ran the elections. And the bureaucrats wanted to be efficient. So it's actually the bureaucrats that wrote reports saying we should have compulsory registration. And if you've got compulsory registration, why wouldn't you also have compulsory voting? So I think it was, it was those three things, the commitment to majoritarian democracy, but also, and the Labor Party, but also the fact that we had government public servants running our elections. 
A couple of other things that you have in your elections in Australia are, one, you have a, a preferential voting system. Two, you have voting on Saturdays. I'm wondering if these somehow complement compulsory uh, compulsory voting um, and help create a culture of, of participation in democracy. Well, I, I think they do. The Saturday voting was brought in by a Labor government um, and it was there was not much opposition to that and, I mean, it was obviously practical. People had uh, half-day holidays on Saturday afternoon. Um, women got the vote in 1902 here at federal elections, so it meant that um, it could be a family event, affair. Um, parents could go down and vote together and, you know, the kids would come along. Um, and the preferential voting also, it was a majoritarian argument that the person who was elected was supported in some form by the majority of the voters. Now, it didn't mean that you got the person that the most people wanted, but you got the person who was least disliked by most people. So, again, I, th- I think that it, it, it does support the same majoritarian impulse. Um, here's an argument that you make in the book. You, you, you say that compulsory voting means that Australian elections are won and lost in the centre. Can, can you go into that a bit for us and, um, and then maybe talk about how it affects the strategy of political parties and the way that elections are fought? Yes. Well, what it means is that the sort of playing to the base, which you see, um, we've seen increasingly, particularly in the United States, doesn't really work here because the government has to win the majority of seats and it has to get 50% plus one of the votes to win a seat. So it means that if you just appeal to the more extreme ends of the political spectrum, uh, you're not going to win the election. You have to cast, you have to be a catch-all party to use a political science term. You've got to cast your net reasonably wide and you can't really afford to ignore, uh, substantial groups in, in, in the, in the electorate. So, um, and I think it means that it, it does put a sort of egalitarian pressure onto politicians. I say in the book that I think that if we didn't have compulsory voting, we wouldn't have Medicare, which is the name for our sort of national health system, um, because the Liberal Party, um, which is a sort of centre-right party, was ideologically opposed to a nationalised health system. But it's so popular that they can't afford to go to an election saying that that they want to dismantle it or fiddle with it in any in any way. So... I do think it it um, it's a sort of egalitarian discipline on politicians to some extent. I've, I've also uh, read a, read that you say the things that some voters are most passionate about often tend to be extreme things as well, and it's a good way of combating that. Yeah, so just keeping the emotional temperature down a little bit, I think. And I also think that it it. Um, because we have compulsory registration as well as compulsory voting, it means that that people, that that you know, young people, um, are drawn into the political system, and so are new citizens. Now, get young people are in fact, you know, often low have, have do have lower levels of registration and do are less likely to vote. Um, 
But even so, it, 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 it's a pressure. It, it sort of it pushes people to participate at least once every three years. And, and you said uh, objections are raised periodically, but has, has there been any serious objection to compulsory voting? Is it something that rears its head in, in any significant way? The only people who raise it are people on the right of the Liberal Party and they, they tend to raise it in the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters uh, and then they pass, if, they've, if, if the Conservative parties have got control, they'll pass something recommending the compulsory voting be done away with. But it never go, It hasn't gone anywhere. They, under John Howard this happened and John Howard said, look, I agree with you, I don't actually support compulsory voting but the, the, the population does, so I'm not going to do anything about it. That is, he wasn't going to spend political capital on this because it's actually got widespread popular support. And what do you think the UK can learn from compulsory voting in Australia? I think compulsory voting is terrific. And uh, when you asked me the question before about why other countries haven't got it, I mean, I think there's different reasons. I, I think in the United States there's a very strong liberal slash libertarian political culture, a sort of social contract political culture, which would make it impossible. I don't think it would be so difficult to introduce in the United Kingdom. I think probably, you know, there's still a class lag in um, the, the, the um, political system in the UK. Um, but I, And I think it's a, a force for social cohesion, particularly when you've got multi-ethnic communities, because it does mean that everybody has to buy into the political system and the politicians know that. And just, just on that, when did the, the first Australians, um, which I think some people use the term Aboriginal people still, but when, when were they included in uh, Australian elections? Well, look, it's an incredibly messy story. Um, they were able to vote in some of the colonies. Some of the colonies never excluded them, but other colonies did. Uh, when we came to the 1902 federal elections, they were excluded uh, and then there, some of them were able to vote then after the first, Second World War if they'd fought in the, in the armed services. But it's really, I guess, in 1962 that um, the federal law is made much clearer to to sort of invite, you know, that, that Aboriginal people are able to vote. So it's quite late. Well, Judith, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening. I hope you're sort of sipping a glass of a nice glass of Chardonnay on a porch somewhere within a few minutes. Uh, but thank you for taking time out of your evening to talk to us. Thank you for your interest. Now, to talk about what compulsory voting could do for us here in the UK, with me is Sarah Birch, who is a professor of political science at King's College in London. She's also author of Full Participation, which is a book about compulsory voting. Uh, she's worked with the IPPR on their proposals for compulsory voting in the UK. And as you arrived at my house, you told, told us that your road to Damascus moment with regards to compulsory voting was, was very near here. Yes, I, I was out, this is about 15 years ago, I was out canvassing in a local tower block here that has maybe 10 stories and four flats on each story. And I was out with the marked register that shows who had voted in the previous election. I found that only about 
half a dozen people and this entire tower block had voted. And I thought, well, these are the people who most rely on public services and they're not out there voting. There must be a problem. And the only solution I can see is to make voting mandatory. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Um, so, so declining voter turnout is something we've talked about on the podcast before. But as a refresher, can you maybe start by telling us why low turnout undermines our democracy here in the UK? In my view, the real problem is unequal turnout. The fact that certain groups vote with higher frequencies than others. For, so young people are less likely to vote than older people and less well-off people don't vote at rates that are as high as, as more affluent people. And the problem with this is that it gives parties a, an incentive to cater to the interests of the groups that vote with the greatest frequency, older people and richer people. And it gives them incentive not to pay as much attention to the interests of the young and the poor. So some people say uh, voting is a collective action problem. Um, before you explain why that is, can you explain what that is? Okay, a collective action problem is a situation in which everyone would benefit from doing something, but no individual has an incentive to do that. Uh, for example, we all benefit from the fact that there's taxation and the government can provide services for us, but individuals don't particularly want to have to pay their taxes. Of course, individuals realise that it's probably a good thing that the government collects some taxes so that it can provide services, so they um, generally do are, are prepared to pay some tax. But if it weren't for a law requiring them to do that, they probably wouldn't um, pay tax and, and we wouldn't have public services. Now, when it comes to voting, the collective action problem is slightly different. But a lot of people who are in groups that don't vote um, so often, for example, young people may think, well, why should I vote? Because the politicians don't pay attention to people like me. And they're right, because politicians don't have so much incentive to pay attention to the, the interests of young people and other groups that don't vote with um, so often. And so the politicians, therefore, don't necessarily develop policies to to cater to the interests of those people, and those people um, see no particular reason to vote. So what you get is this cycle of underrepresentation and underparticipation, a vicious cycle that, in my view, can only be broken by making voting compulsory. So what could it look like? What are the ideas for introducing compulsory voting here? Most people who study compulsory voting agree that no one should be forced to vote in the sense that nobody should be obliged to go to the polling station and tick a box next to a particular candidate or political party. So under a system of compulsory voting, people would be obliged to go to the polling station, but if they didn't want to vote for anything that was on the ballot, then they could tick a none of the above box. But everybody would be obliged to either go to the polling station or order uh, a postal ballot and take part in every election. So what about this idea that people should have a right not to vote? Well, that's an interesting idea. But of course, having a right to do something doesn't necessarily give you a right not to do it. Take, for example, the minimum wage. We all have a right to be paid the minimum wage. That doesn't mean we have a right not to be paid the minimum wage. As a matter of fact, that's illegal. Everyone has to be paid at least the minimum wage. So I think some people think that they um, should have a right not to vote. But then again, you know, rights go together with duties. And together with all of our rights, we have certain duties. We have a duty, for example, to send our children to school, to pay taxes, to get a driving license if you want to drive a car. There are lots of things that are we're obliged to do. We have a duty to do in our society and, and countries. Most countries, voting is one of the things that's their duty. And let, let's talk about the impact that compulsory voting uh, would have on politics and on public policy here. Start broadly just telling me what difference you think it could make. 
Um, well, if politicians of all political parties have an incentive to cater to the, to the interests of all groups, then I think all of the political parties would change their approach. They would pay more attention to the interests of young people and less well-off people. And I think that this would mean fairer outcomes because everybody would have an equal voice because everybody's interests would be catered to. So the real compulsory element of compulsory voting, to my mind, is that it would compel politicians to pay attention to all voters equally. Would, would politics become more moderate? There is that view. There's, um, there is research that suggests that one of the reasons why compulsory voting was introduced in some European countries in the 20th century was that it would make politics more moderate. And the argument for this is that a lot of people who don't vote are people who don't have strong views, whereas the people who vote may include people who have more extreme views. And if you bring into the electorate a lot of people who are sensible people who have relatively moderate views, um, then you do make politics more moderate. So yes, that's a possibility. It could be a, a means of addressing uh, polarisation in politics. And, and would it benefit some parties more than others? I think that all parties would adapt. And so the research that I've done has suggested that there's no particular benefit in states with compulsory voting to one party or another, that uh, political parties of all stripes um, very quickly adapt to the new situation and uh, they would all change their policies. So it might change the policy offer in aggregate um, in the sense that there would be more policies offered by all political parties that cater to the interests of young people and less well-off people. But I'm not sure it would give any particular political party an advantage. How would it affect the, the nature of our elections? Elections would become a matter of convincing people uh, uh, to vote a particular way, not trying to mobilise them to vote. A lot of election campaigning in the UK and other countries where voting is voluntary, a lot of election campaigning is targeted at trying to mobilise the vote, trying to get people to go to the polling station, sometimes by scaring them, by saying nasty things about the other political party, fear tactics, um, and... I think with uh, compulsory voting, the effort would be very much on convincing people that a particular party's offer was an attractive one. So that we might lead to more positive campaigns um, and there would be potentially more of a debate about uh, policies. Can we talk through some of the alternatives um, and you can maybe explain why compulsory voting would be a better solution to low turnout than these alternatives? So uh, examples would be early voting, uh, voting at the weekend, automatic registration... Well, back in the early 2000s, the Electoral Commission, together with the government, uh, tried a lot of these things. There were there was a series of pilots um, that addressed all of the, the proposals you have suggested. And there was only one uh, alternative to compulsory voting that uh, improved turnout. Uh, substantially, and that was having all postal ballots. So where nobody goes to the polling station, everyone votes by post. But uh, then subsequently, there turned out that there were some significant problems with postal voting, and politicians then went off the idea of extending postal voting because of concerns with security and possible fraud. And what about this idea that I think has been mooted here, that there should be compulsory voting, but only for first-time voters to get them hooked? 
Yes, that's an idea that I came up with um, together with my colleagues at the IPPR that I was working with at the time. And uh, the idea is, especially if you lower the voting age to 16, there are a lot of things that it's considered socially appropriate to require a 16-year-old to do that we might be a bit more hesitant to require somebody who's older to do. Uh, and there are also, you know, there are a lot of things that are rites of passage um, when you turn 16 or when you turn 18. And having, making people um, try voting once, if they don't like like it, they don't have to do it again. But requiring them, everyone to try voting once is a potentially a good way of encouraging people to vote. So there's evidence to suggest that if people vote the first time they're eligible, they will continue voting later on in life. And also um, that would write the balance to some extent. Bringing a lot of younger people into the electorate would oblige politicians to pay attention to the interests of the young because they knew they would know that there would, would be a lot of young people going to vote at each election. What does the research say about uh, voter apathy? Like, what what are the underlying reasons? Well, following the Second World War, people had a very strong sense of duty to country. And so there was a generation of people who came of age in the 1950s and 1960s, and their parents had gone to fight for them their country. Uh, and so they uh, there was a very strong sense of you know, specific duty to vote, so go out and vote because uh, we believe in contributing to, uh, to to the country in that way. Over the, over the generations, um, that perception has perhaps faded. People have more things in their lives, especially with the, the, the rise of the internet. People have a lot of activities they engage in. They may feel they don't have so much time to go vote. Politics may seem a bit more remote to them. And the sense of duty to country has has waned to some extent. And so there's many more things in people's lives mean that younger people simply have have less of a sense of duty to vote. And the, the, the survey research um, suggests that this is the case. And when we think about those issues around low turnout, is, is compulsory voting not to some extent just a sticking plaster? Um, you might say that uh, in the sense that just requiring somebody to go out and turn up at the polling station is not going to solve their problem of disaffection. And I fully agree with that. But in my view, the compulsory voting's impact is more on the politicians than it is on the individual voter. And I think compulsory voting would give politicians a major incentive to pay attention to the interests of a wider uh, sector of the electorate, people who don't vote with um, with such frequency, young people, poor people, and so forth. And I think that there would be a real change in politicians' orientation towards the electorate. They would ha- have to take everyone's interests seriously and treat everyone equally. So I think it would lead to uh, a major change in politics, but it would start with the politicians and then hopefully the, the citizens would pick up on that. Why has the UK avoided compulsory voting in, until now? Is is it this thing that it fa- the, the the idea that at least initially it would favour some parties over others? So the establishment don't want change. Are there other reasons? I think in the UK there's traditionally been um, hesitant to make anything compulsory. And the idea of compulsion is something that, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. But surprising numbers of people in the UK do actually favour compulsory voting. The surveys that have been done 
over the last couple of decades suggests that depending on the survey, between about a quarter and a third of people would consider some type of compulsory voting. And first time compulsory voting is something that has even enjoys even more support. Um, and this, this is despite the fact that none of the major political parties is proposing compulsory voting. So I think with a bit of convincing, people might be brought round to the idea of having compulsory voting in some form, even if it were just for people the first time they had to vote. And we have a thing on the podcast. It's a utopia. I'm a benign dictator. It's called the Jeffocracy. But uh, apart from my position at the top, everything else is a very smooth running, very transparent democracy. If, if we may, if we put you in charge of elections, what is the first thing you would do with regards to compulsory voting? I would reduce the voting age to 16 and oblige everyone to vote in the first election for which they were eligible. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Well, I will admit that when this episode was mooted, I was pretty unexcited at the prospect. But having heard from our guests and having given it some thought, I'm definitely a convert. I can't really see a downside. I think it's one of those subjects like Votes at 16, where the main arguments against it are just that certain political parties might take a hit, so they'd rather keep the status quo, unless I'm missing something. But anyway, we will have all the research and background information for you on our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on compulsory voting. Is there something that I'm missing? Have you got any ideas maybe on how to get people out to vote? All the ways to get in touch are on our website. This comes from Debbie Scholes. The subject line is dogs and letterboxes. 
Debbie says, I just wanted to get in touch after listening to the recent episode where you talked about someone on the campaign trail getting injured by a dog. And Ed mentioned that posties have a special thing to push the mail through so you don't have to push fingers through the letterbox. My first job after school was a postie and I can confirm that we did get training about dealing with dogs. And I had a friend who got his finger bitten by a dog and he got in trouble for not following the training to keep himself safe. I can also confirm that the special tool we had to push letters through so that dogs couldn't bite fingers was, drumroll please, our pen. Low tech and effective. Keep up the pod. I've uh, I've moved to Australia now, and despite the current issues in British politics, I still despair of the state of politics over here in comparison. That is interesting, especially given everything we've heard about compulsory voting in Australia in this episode. Thank you, Debbie. This comes from Darcy James, who says, Firstly, I love you both in equal measure, but as a fellow Maxonian, I must say hello to Jeff first and say how lovely it is to have Maxonian representation on a weekly basis. I'm so gutted. Darcy, that Ed isn't here to listen to this. I I bet he wouldn't even know that the correct term for someone from Macclesfield is a Maxonian. And I am a proud Maxonian. Uh, I'm on a list that includes Johnny Maxfield, who was the the granddad in the old Heinz Soup adverts. One for the millennials there. Uh, Who else from Macclesfield? Mr. Methane, who is a a speciality act. I I think you'd call him a flatulist. And of course, the Mac lads, no sheep till Buxton. Uh, So yeah, happy to be on that list. Darcy continues. I'm a little late, but whilst it's still relevant, I wanted to make suggestions about future televised leaders' election debates. I love the suggestion from your previous episode on a light being put on the microphones when politicians go over the time limit. To make this even more beneficial, I think we should have a light on the microphone that turns red whenever a politician makes an unkind or inflammatory comment. This would help navigate the conversation and would help certain parties stop constantly offending their opposing parties instead of talking about policies. I also think there should be a legal requirement for leaders to attend a televised debate on certain themes, such as, but not limited to, climate change, education and immigration. This would help the public gain a transparent and informed view of all party stances on key topics and help show inconsistencies and accuracies and gain the trust of the public in politics again. Uh, thanks for all you do. I look forward to the cheerful book club returning, which it will be in the new year as soon as uh, Ed's back off the campaign trail. And as a bookseller, I am always keen to recommend and have recommendations. Darcy in Macclesfield, I salute you. Finally, this from Nick Caddick, who says, um, I am happy to report that Jeff's podcast fame has not gone to his head as when I had a chance encounter with him on Saturday afternoon at the Discovery Centre in Stratford, uh, he was happy to engage in conversation about the wonderful Tiger Who Came to Tea story that our children were enjoying. Man, it was good. That place is amazing. I've never been there before, but I'll definitely be going back. And uh, it's good to meet you, Nick. Uh, Nick continues, I felt a little bad about not saying goodbye. But my daughter managed to bash a toy pram into another little girl who cut her lip and she wouldn't stop crying. She half apologised to the girl, but I was feeling pretty embarrassed. So uh, I thought it best we just scarp her. This is such a relief to me, Nick, because I thought I'd, I'd, my small talk was too bad that you'd done a runner. Um, 
And it continues, anyway, I enjoy the podcast, so I thought it would be worth mentioning as a suggestion for a future episode about the ongoing UCU strikes concerning the damage being done to higher education by continuing marketization and casualization of academic contracts. This is an issue that is seriously impacting many of my academic colleagues and definitely merits attention as part of your focus on education within your podcast. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here with some highlights of uh, this this week's election campaign, I'm delighted to welcome back Glenn Moore. Hello. Hello, how are you? I, I'm, um, can you tell I'm a little bunged up? No, not at all. That's good, because I'm not somebody who tends to suffer silently when I have any form of lurgy. Mm. But in, in recent years, I've been trying not to make it my main topic of conversation. That's it. Yeah, I find I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a cold and I'm happy to talk about having a cold, but I try not to make it... I try not to base my personality around I have a cold. Well, I think I did for many years. Well, actually, I've got a cold at the moment, so maybe the only reason I didn't know you were bunged up is because I myself cannot hear you. Right. So there's that. that that's, that's and what is it? You've got a mild. I've got a mild cold. Have you got a mild cold? Yeah, as in it's one that isn't really going to affect my sort of day to day life. So it's sorry. Just, yeah. it's, it, I think it's a sort that makes you. Um, I, I think really sort of harken back to the, the the days of old when you didn't have a cold, and you think I really regret not appreciating three days ago when it didn't hurt to swallow and stuff like that. And I always think, whenever I've got a cold, I always think, next time I don't have a cold, as yeah. soon as I'm out of the back of this cold, I'm going to really, really appreciate just being able to breathe freely and just go, oh, I don't have a cold right now. And yeah. I think that'd be a nice... I think this mild cold is going to give me a new lease on life. I'm yeah, absolutely. Really yeah. So if anything, if anything this can, yeah, what doesn't kill you actually makes you stronger yes. to an extent you yes. couldn't even imagine. <laughs> All right, you've brought in uh, a few things from this week. What, what is the first one? Uh, well, the first one is uh, Donald Trump's visit uh, to the UK, something that isn't necessarily um, specifically linked to the general election, but one that undoubtedly has sort of a large effect, uh, especially because of uh, his comments about the NHS um, and the idea that, you know, he seems very in favour of sort of uh, private sort of medical health care um, because he has that very sort of uh, strictly sort of conservative view in the US of, um, you know, not, not sort of a great deal of sort of government control and, you know, getting involved in sort of people's business. But that makes it so complicated for the UK that is, that is leaving the European Union and has to make trade deals with a number of different countries and be nice to them. And I think this is the big fear that people had with someone like Donald Trump being elected in the first place a few years ago, not, not just because of his general sort of behaviour and how erratic um, and and clearly racist his policies are. But also in terms of, right, this is someone we have to be subservient to. I think it was like a, a Twilight Zone episode where there was a, a a child who was like incredibly powerful. And so the whole episode was about these villagers who were really nice to this child at all times because he could just destroy them at any one moment. And so it would be really weird to see whoever does come into power, whichever major party does win the general election, to see if they are going to have to bend over backwards to accommodate this. It just feels mad. It feels really mad. And everyone's going to talk about it so diplomatically. Yes. And the only sentence they can say is, we will work closely with all countries to do this. Were you amazed by how good behaviour he was on? So he'd clearly been said, you've got to to toe this line about the NHS. 
uh and and you've also not got to be seen to endorse any uh any any particular candidate and then I mean, boris johnson really but he, he he really behaved himself in a way that i i don't think we've seen before because he can't help but go off script he d- he did but I, I the thing is i'm not sure if there are elements that were maybe more unprofessional that we just didn't See, or in retrospect, if, if say you'd never heard of Donald Trump before. Oh, right. And right. then you had a look at what he'd said. You actually go, well, this is insane. Yes. But, uh, actually, we're conditioned. So, but we are so yeah. deadened. And you sort of go, oh, after all, there's a, there's a, there's a, spe- a broad spectrum of, of, of insanity with Donald Trump of what really, really is insane and what would just be insane for a regular person. And uh, so much of it just isn't really worth reporting now because it's clearly not going to change anyone's minds. Uh, you, you know, it, it, he, you, you, you either love him or you hate him. I really haven't encountered anyone who sort of goes, he's fine. Yeah. There's no, there <laughs> yeah, is yeah. no one who exists like that. And so it's really strange when you have politicians who have to think, they have to think he's insane. It's the thing I, I've, I'm often fascinated about with, with Donald Trump, but I don't think I'm ever going to come to terms with. And it's been spoken about so many times, but just even if you support his, policies even if you are racist enough or far right enough to support what he thinks and what he wants to happen surely you must appreciate he is not the right avatar for this like he is he he, he's completely inept as an individual to be able to do this i find i like i I, because i can i can understand i can understand with some politicians in the uk if they're particularly sort of prone to lying or are deeply unpleasant people, but you can be tricked by them. I understand that people are tricked by politicians uh, in the same way that, like, I personally do not like poison, but I could understand how someone could accidentally ingest poison because it was in a nice cake. Right. But Donald Trump is just... He's dog shit directly from a dog's ass. <laughs> there's nothing... There's nothing to dress that up. And it's, I've never, ever come to terms with it. And I looked forward when he first got elected to thinking, I look forward to the day when I, when I understand and I go, I hate him, but okay, I can see how this happened. But to this day, I can't. And it feels, and it rolls around every now and then when he say makes a visit to the UK, as he did a few months back, where suddenly you see every politician have to talk really diplomatically. Yeah about him so as to not upset this twilight zone child yeah although jeremy corbyn did say he was going to go to buckingham palace and have a right old go and now, now that never materialized and but that's the weird thing as yeah. well because you sort of go i want a politician to stand up to him and as soon as politicians says they're going to you like no 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 we like being alive yeah. so just keep him happy yeah and don't do anything it's it's strange to and it's worrying as well to hear that uh, from, from politicians sort of talking about him and talking about how trade negotiations will work really what relationship they are going to have with Donald Trump next. Because even with, obviously, you know, we have Boris Johnson as the prime minister, but he's never campaigned before. This is the first time he sort of campaigned. So it's it's weird to hear these sort of opinions for the first time and what anyone's going to do. And because so many, uh, there are parties whose, who's, you know, uh, stance on Brexit is a bit sort of wishy-washy that, you know what if 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 labor you know uh if if labor did win and you know as they promised that you know they, they put forward another brexit referendum and let's say leave wins again then yeah how how on earth does a party like labor or a party like the lib dems negotiate with donald trump when they're so completely against each other's viewpoints i don't know well will we will we get i to know I, 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 yeah that's see. yeah exactly that's remains to be seen uh what else from this week then um so i've seen a lot on social media about people posting leaflets that they've seen uh, getting through the door the lib dems 
are trying not to sort of entertain as a possibility that they could ever have to enter in a, into a coalition or anything like that. So what they've been doing is they've been sort of posting around these sort of leaflets through lots of people's doors sort of going, actually, this isn't a safe seat for anyone. And the most entertaining uh, incarnation of this has been a few days ago in which uh, these leaflets were going around uh, Islington North, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's <laughs> constituency saying it's not actually a safe seat. And I think Labour won by... 40,000, I think, last yeah, time yeah, yeah. that. Like, I'd like to know how effective leaflets are generally as a method of campaigning. Because if I, if I went down into my hall now, mm. there's probably like three pizza leaflets. But have you, have you, had, have you ever it. ordered pizza from a leaflet? No. Never. No. Well, oh, I was going to It's as okay. Maybe, maybe I did, yeah, but these days I just look on an app. Yeah, that's a good point. But the deals come from the leaflets. You rarely get the best deal via an app. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They, yeah. I think the leaflets have feel like a more. You've really bespoke. come out strongly in favour of leaflets in a way. Yeah. Well, actually, I've, well, I've come. Well, I've, yeah. In, in this political podcast, I've actually come out very strongly in favour of pizza. <laughs> is what I've done. Um, uh, but I, I think. Um, so you any any leaflet that gets shoved through your letterbox, you're looking at. You're not no, I don't, yeah, I haven't got that much time on my hands. But just I, the great thing a political party could do if they they want to get people to look at them is make them look like those cards that the post office put through when yeah. you missed a parcel sorry we missed you yeah but in return yes yeah just yeah. Just, re- just steal that design somebody will pick it up and say, hang on a minute that would this? be a good way of doing it is if yep. they get because sometimes they give you sort of a code that you have to sort of bring along to the post office but they said yeah sorry we missed you bring this code and 10 pounds to Domino's. yes and in exchange <laughs> we'll give you a pizza that would work better. Uh, what's the final thing you've uh, you've enjoyed this week in the campaign, Glenn? Boris, on this morning, um, it's always interesting to see how party leaders sort of fare on sort of various shows. And obviously, the big controversy surrounding a lot of leaders uh, this time around has been, well, who, who's going to appear on what? Who's even allowed to appear on what? The fact that the SNP and Lib Dems weren't allowed on one particular stage. And at the same time, Boris Johnson has been very very sort of uh airy about the idea of you know where he's going to appear and if he's going to be on andrew neil that's the sort of that's the big one um and instead sort of opted for um for holly and phil uh who i mean having not watched the entirety of the interview maybe they did give him a very strong grilling but at the same time if they did then he probably wouldn't have posed for that selfie afterwards. Yeah. Which feels always very strange. It feels like a very, in the same way that everything in the UK feels like a smaller scale version of everything in the US, this potentially feels like our uh, Jimmy Fallon ruffling Donald Trump's hair mm. sort of moment. Um, and because, it, because the scope really held Jeremy Corbyn's feet to the fire. Well, I mean, did, did he? Has he? Well, he, he sort of he, he kept asking him to apologise. I mean, it was it was this morning that finally got the apology out of Jeremy. Well, that, but that's, that's the thing about shows like this morning. I mean, should you have leaders on in in the first place on a show like that? And if if you are, you need you need to decide right. Are you going to grill all of them? Yes. Or are you going to be really friendly with all of them? Yes. And also, should you be friendly to any politician? But I do like seeing both sides, though. But that's but the worry is that but, people but, but, only but, ever see one side. But that's a politician's chance that they get to do that on their social media. Boris Johnson gets to do that right. when he does his making his cups of tea video. He, he which get, perhaps wasn't true even five years ago. Well, he, yeah. and and he gets to exactly because yeah. they, they didn't have where where were you going to show that? You couldn't yes. just buy up the space on TV during the X Factor ad breaks or something like that. So what? I, yeah, I, I I feel like um, it, they're given the chance to sort of portray their most positive side on their social media which you yourself can seek out but it's for everyone else to to really grill them right so you don't want to see any politicians 
on this morning. I don't. I don't want to see them baking a flan <laughs> or something. That I. 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 I no. I don't want to because I. Don't, I don't want to. I, I. I know I can be very easily tricked by that. Yeah. And I feel and it feels like tricking, regardless of how nice the politician is. And there are some politicians who I do really like and would love to see on a show like that. But I have to sort of go. No. 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 Come on. It's one rule for everyone. It's only fair. The main flaw in what I'm suggesting and proposing is that you could have one utterly insane candidate who's constantly saying dreadful things and one person who's only saying nice things, but you have to be equally yeah. harsh to both of them. Yeah. But it just it just depends on how... But if if you po- if, if it's not so much about past controversies, but how are you going to deal with this situation? How will you do this? How will you deal with that? How are you, you know, are, are holding them to account for what their campaign promises will be? I think that's reasonable. Um, love Don't Live Here Glenny Moore. Yeah. The, the tour of that show, which is a big hit in Edinburgh this year, that continues. It continues for January. this month, January, and then a, a run at the Soho Theatre in London in April. So uh, it's going to be a fair few months before I put that show to bed. Great. Glenn, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And here we are in the outro. I can feel myself coming down with a lurgy. I hope my voice will... Uh, Hold out for these last couple of minutes. Thanks to our guests, Judith Brett and Sarah Birch, and to the brilliant Glenn Moore. Emma Caution produces our podcast with research and backup from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents. And our artwork wasn't designed by Emily Power, nor was it made by Freya Walker. Uh, Olive Vanilli emailed and said, I'd like to take up this opportunity of fame and in brackets and fortune and nominate a person who didn't design your artwork either. My girlfriend, Freya. She is a real political nerd. She's listened to all your podcasts, introducing me uh, to the podcast about six months ago. Since then, it has made for perhaps the most enjoyable hour of work each Monday. And I've become an avid Jeffreyite. Is that the term for a supporter of the Jeffocracy? Yeah, I, I, I guess it is. I mean, unless you can think of a better one. If you can think of a better one, uh, do email us through the website or get in touch on social media. Um, Oliver says, she's delighted you're able to inform me on current political issues as she very ably endeavours to educate me on politics, her degree, whilst patiently tolerating my sometimes stubborn extreme left views. She, Freya Walker, like Emily Power, did not design your artwork this week. All the best and long live the Jeffocracy. Well, uh, thanks for that, Oliver. And if you, like Emily Power, would like credit for not designing our artwork, email us through the website, and our artwork was in fact designed by Henry Cole. And that's all for this week. Uh, Do make sure you go out and vote on Thursday. Unless, of course, you're listening to this after the election, uh, when it's probably best that you don't go hanging around your local primary school. He's been Thelma, I've been Louise, and these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save. 